welcome backwards to Bodhi Speak. Today we're going to talk about dopamine. Before we talk about dopamine, I wanted to cover two things from the last podcast on the neuroscience of healing having to do with fasting. One is people wondering about if you can exercise while fasting. And what I have found is actually that exercising oftentimes is even easier fasting. And that's because there's not as much food holding us down. We're not stuck in a digestive process and our body is burning energy much more efficiently and being in a state of ketosis, uh, there's a lot more flow and cognitive enhancement and our willpower is already activated in a certain level. So actually, exercise while fasting is great. Running, weightlifting, so on and so forth. I've personally found upwards of 48 hours of water fasting are all great. After that, I find... There are some real periods of fatigue for myself personally, and if I was going to lift weights or run, it would be pretty minimal. It'd be a shorter run and not with heavy weight so that we're not trying to grow our physical strength so much as just sustain it. And even doing things such as just like light walking can be really wonderful in that state. And I think after 48 hours of water fasting, it's great to be in a more uh, nurturing, physically ordained way of engaging ourselves the other thing worth mentioning it's really interesting uh, is actually that caffeine is actually beneficial for fasting it activates the ampk pathway which leads to a state of autophagy and so that a lot of people recommend having uh, coffee or some kind of caffeinated tea without any cream or sugar or milk or honey or sweetener or anything like that just having it straight uh, as a way to go deeper into the state of autophagy and obviously if you don't take caffeine then it's better to not take it when you're fasting as well and obviously if you're doing a fast as a way of more of a spiritual and perhaps you could say emotional purification then it's better to abstain because the med- part of the medicine for you is abstinence in this respect but at the same time there is something to be said uh, about the biology and how that system works and that caffeine actually can be very beneficial for activating um, the healing process that fasting activates within the system. And it's kind of funny. I used to work at a raw food place that had kind of like a punk rock attitude called Juice Press. And they would kind of have all these like... Uh, flyers and stuff like that like mocking people and things along those lines and they had one where someone would come in and they would say you know what kind of coffee should i have with my juice fast and and the whole point was they were like mocking the the stupidity of the or the ignorance of the the bougie crowd that would come in and want to drink a latte with their juice fast or have a donut with their juice fast or something like that and i thought it was kind of ironic because it turns out actually that having like a straight coffee would actually Uh, benefit your fast in terms of activating autophagy so just the more you know the more we have to expose ourselves to ideas that are contrary that we don't think are necessarily true so exercise also worth mentioning running and lifting weights and this kind of thing you know when it's really stimulating also activates autophagy Uh, for those people who didn't listen to the first podcast on fasting Autophagy is the process of self-eating where the body clears up all the neurological damage and waste from a very deep cellular level and resets the body. So caffeine and exercise, uh, not necessarily together, 
but you could do them together if you wanted to, are actually beneficial for the body. From a spiritual perspective, you might want to abstain from the caffeine as a lot of people feel they are in a place of addiction in respect to it. So just some stuff to meditate on and study deeper. Remember, always do your own research and don't just assume that what I'm saying is true. Question it, check it out for yourself. But what I've seen, all the literature on uh, exercising and caffeine are actually totally harmonious with fasting. And if anything, they support the healing work of fasting. So let's start talking about dopamine. Dopamine is a neuromodulator. It's different than a neurotransmitter in that it influences communication of many neurons at once. Dopamine is the primary determinant behind how excited we are, how motivated we are, and how ready we are to push through things to get what we want. Dopamine influences motivation, drive, craving, and time perception. Two main pathways we will reference, although there are four, uh, the two we're going to reference are the mesocortical limbic pathway responsible for reward, motivation, and craving, and the nigostratial pathway responsible for movement. So what you need to take away from this is we have craving, motivation, reward, and movement. These are sort of the fundamental things that stimulate and activate dopamine, which is not just about pleasure. It's because a lot of people hear and they think of like heroin when they think of dopamine, right? Or smoking tobacco. But dopamine is a universal currency of foraging and seeking things that will provide sustenance and pleasure in the short term and extend your life in the long term. Dopamine does lie at the heart of all addictions, uh, and we can increase dopamine through behaviors with rapid and long-lasting results. Dopamine is a currency, and it's the way you track pleasure, track success, track whether or not you are doing well or poorly in life. You can say your experience of life and motivation or drive is relative to how much dopamine you have at any given moment. <laughs> Interesting thing to think about, just how much of your life is really just colored and shaped by this neuromodulator and how it's moving in your brain. And then once you understand that you can biohack your dopamine system, all of a sudden that's a lot of power being able to inform yourself in the direction you want to go. doesn't make it easy, but it is giving you a lot of power. So there's always a baseline level of dopamine, and there's certain moments you want to spike it. Uh, adrenaline, also referred to as epinephrine, is manufactured by dopamine. Dopamine is what moves us forward in life. Overcoming difficult tasks lead to a rise in dopamine, which makes us feel good, and it encourages us to move forward to continue seeking the reward. Interesting to note and also obvious when you think about it, but we create a state of neuroplasticity where the mind neurologically unlocks and we stimulate learning and growth from a neurological level. That happens when we encounter friction and not knowing how to accomplish a task. Neuroplasticity does not come from a flow state. A flow state, on the other hand, is just an expression of what we already know. New growth in the brain does not occur when we simply do things we already know how to do and we feel this flow that everyone is searching for. So... This understanding of how dopamine release comes as a reward of hard work and neuroplasticity and learning arise from seeking out activities that create friction in our lives can lead us to challenge ourselves in new ways and neurologically benefit us on the deepest of levels. So be brave enough to try something new that you suck at, <laughs> right? This is the idea is that like people say, I want to seek out flow, but really 
you do at certain moments, but there's other moments where you really want to put yourself and humble yourself to be completely clueless. And that's really where you're growing and reshaping your brain in a positive way. If you're always just flowing, then you're kind of in a static way on some kind of ironic way to think about it from the level of neurology. So this I found very helpful for me when I'm doing construction, which I'm not a master by any means of, and it's confusing and I'm doing it wrong and I get pissed off because I'm doing it wrong and then I think to myself, wait a minute, I'm now activating neuroplasticity in my brain and once I figure this out, I will get a dopamine release and feel really good. That knowledge of the mechanism has affected my behavior and changed how I relate to life and obstacles and adversity in a very positive way and has encouraged me to move forward with difficult things, not give up, and uh, be inspired by challenging myself in new ways. So I hope it can do the same for you. Knowledge is power. So this part is very interesting here coming up. I love this part. Activities and substances that spike dopamine. So chocolate will increase dopamine 150% above baseline, although it can go away in a few minutes to a few seconds. <laughs> Sex, both the pursuit and the act of it, will increase dopamine 200% above baseline. It's kind of profound. It's not really that much more than chocolate, right? But obviously it lasts a little longer. Hopefully. <laughs> That's funny. Exercise will be, a different, will be different depending on how much you enjoy the exercise. If you enjoy it, your exercise will increase dopamine by 200% above baseline, just like sex. If you don't enjoy it, it might not increase your dopamine at all. So there's something to be said about not just the, oh, that felt good after the fact, but what I was doing during being in the moment with it is a huge thing about the dopaminergic system. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Nicotine, when smoked, specifically increased dopamine 250% above the baseline. It's very short-lived and it spiked down immediately. They have not done studies on things like Hop A, to my knowledge. Cocaine increases dopamine 250% above baseline. Not really much more than exercise, interestingly enough. And then you have this one, amphetamine increases dopamine 1000% above baseline. Whoa. Wow. Problem is amphetamine and cocaine can limit dopamine learning and plasticity over a long period of time no surprise there those things are just like the devil right i mean they just they just destroy you nicotine very interestingly enough there's a lot of research that suggests it's actually a neuroprotective agent against neurodegenerative diseases like parkinson's and alzheimer's obviously if you smoke to get nicotine you're counteracting any benefit and you're poisoning yourself perhaps just as bad if not worse than any, like cocaine or amphetamine but there's other methods of ingesting it, such as hop A, uh, or there was even a famous Nobel Prize winning scientist who would chew Nicorette gum at times because of this principle. It's not something that's been 100% proven, and obviously nicotine can be addictive because of the way it interacts with dopamine. So something like hop A, the powdered tobacco from the Amazon jungle that the tribes like the Huniku and Yawanawa use, you need to be very careful because it can lead you into all kinds of bad situations because it does have an addictive quality to it anything that releases that much dopamine that short acting without needing any effort essentially on your part is not recommended to indulge in often this part is great news for the dopamine uh the cold plunge 
raises dopamine 250 percent above baseline rivaling cocaine more than sex uh rivaling tobacco and more than chocolate um, however unlike all of those there's no radical drop off you return to your baseline level of dopamine after three hours so cocaine it's like you're up and then you're back if <laughs> tobacco you're up and you're back chocolate you're up and you're back but the cold plunge you're in a heightened euphoric state of dopamine for three hours and you gradually come back to your baseline it doesn't damage you in any way and enhances your baseline level of dopamine so wow if you're not jumping in the cold plunge uh often enough or ever then you might really want to seriously consider that because it's more powerful than cocaine <laughs> or, or sex on your dopamine system and uh, it allows you to stay there for hours and what i think is special about the cold plunge is you know you're enacting will to move through adversity because it's not comfortable it's not just like i'm just going to snort something or smoke something and feel good it's like i'm exposing myself to pain which is why it is so powerful uh in terms of release of dopamine because the pain and pleasure system of the body are like a yo-yo right and so when pain comes in then your body responds with things like dopamine to make you feel good so it's one of these things that's kind of a, a miracle because if you're someone like me that has a cold plunge right outside their their uh, back door, it, it you can just hop right in and then all of a sudden here you are in a state of more dopamine than sex <laughs> that lasts for hours. And um, how that impacts the rest of your day is something that's anecdotal for each person, but it's very special. And I'm going to get into the cold water effects on the body and the brain more so later in this podcast. Video games. They release dopamine. I don't have the exact numbers for it. Somewhere between nicotine and cocaine. That's pretty powerful. I would think twice before giving kids video games if they're not really beneficial. I don't know too much information about how video games affect the brain, but they're obviously highly addictive and I want to consider if that's really what you want your kid to be hooked on. Uh, excitement. If you get excited or anticipate something, the rate of dopamine firing will increase 30 to 40% and push you into that action to seek out that stimulus. So, obviously, we like being surprised. Oh my god. Happy birthday. Oh my god, I wasn't expecting that. Dopamine everywhere. Let's all be happy. <laughs> Desire. Just thinking about the thing you want can increase dopamine levels to the degree they will be released when you get the thing in some cases just thinking about nicotine can release tons of dopamine in your brain so uh from like an initiatic perspective this is how powerful the mind is just to think about the thing you desire can lead you to a neurochemical shift that heavy the number one trigger of dopamine release although it's not the highest is novelty new situations why people love to travel why people want to sleep around when maybe they shouldn't <laughs> why we're always seeking the new thing novelty and i mean you can think about this from a survival perspective because new things lead us to new revelations which lead us to self-knowledge which lead us to new healing techniques to things that resolve all kinds of problems it it brings about a rejuvenation of life so if we're not being static there's there's a inherent biological force that's driving us out into the world to seek new experiences for evolutionary purposes 
social media can be as high as where video games are, but then they taper off really quickly. So it's not really something you want to get deep into. Social interaction and intimacy. They also lead to increased dopamine and very positive. And obviously, this is a very healthy addiction, you could say, is our interactions with people. Obviously, to say it's a healthy addiction is kind of a silly you know, oxymoron. But the point being that if you need some boost up in your mood and feeling good, then go seek out interactions with others. Not the easiest thing to do during COVID, but why community is a very essential and important thing for spiritual work and for human uh, interaction and health and brain health and your chemical health. The other thing is that social isolation, when it goes on too long, is associated in everything from flies, believe it or not, to mice and humans with a molecule called, I can't pronounce it, but it's like tachykin, T-A-C-H-Y-K-I-N-I-N. It's a molecule that makes us fearful, paranoid, and impairs our immune system. Wonderful. Uh, it's an internal punishment signal to tell you you need to go spend time with people. So for people that are like, I'm antisocial, it's fine to be antisocial to some degree. But when this molecule ramps up in you, that's a signal that your brain uh, is generating because there's something that you need from people. What I love about this is it's basically we're hardwired neurologically, neurochemically to need each other and be around each other just for simple well-being. It's not even like and it's a great on a certain level because it kind of dampers this idea of like rugged individualism and capitalism and all these things it's saying no like community and connection are are of the most fundamentally important things for our well-being and they release all the things that drugs do and so this is why a social scientist by the name of johan hari was studying research where they had rats that were attracted to cocaine in a laboratory and if the rats were in a really socially healthy and positive environment they didn't really actually seek out cocaine they weren't into it but if they're in like a total prison cell cage which is what most rats and cocaine studies are put in then they go crazy and get addicted to it so it's not that cocaine is the problem the problem is that people are getting their dopamine release uh and too much of this Thai kaiken stuff <laughs> from the wrong sources and they need to just come together and find you know social connection and i mean think about it. social connection and, and the cold plunge that would be a great place to do it obviously because now we're kind of fulfilling multiple circuits here at the same time uh it's been shared that stacking as many dopamine releasing things on top of each other as possible like i'm gonna have sex in the cold plunge while i eat chocolate and smoke amphetamine and then play some video <laughs> video games on social media <laughs> That's not really recommended because it overacts the dopamine circuit. <laughs> Could I talk a little bit about that now? Think about something as ridiculous as that. That would be the wrong misuse of this information. Please do not go doing that and saying that I inspired you to do that. <laughs> so for every bit of dopamine that's released, there's another circuit in the brain that creates a downward deflection in pleasure. So you engage in something you want, and then there's an increase in pleasure. And then without you doing anything, there's a mirror image of which is a downward increase in pleasure, which we're going to call pain. However, uh, each subsequent time that you encounter that thing you pursue, the chocolate that you pursue, the, sim the same lover each time, the experience of dopamine release and pleasure is diminished bit by bit. And, you know, this is what they say happens neurochemically, but it's interesting because... 
I think the degree to which it gets diminished bit by bit is really subjective on the person. Like, you know, some people, it's like if they have the same thing to eat every day, they'll go nuts. I was living in Nepal, and I was living with the family, and I was working with the guys' work. We were taking kids on, like, outdoor treks and stuff like that. There was a guy that I worked with, Nepalese, and he would have dalbot every day, which is just rice and lentils. And you have it three times a day. And this is, like, pretty normal in Nepal to have a mono diet like that. And he's like, oh, man, I just love, I just love Dalbot. It's like, I just can't wait to have it. <laughs> and I was like, wow, there's all this food. We're in Kathmandu. It's a city, you know, and there's a lot of different food options. He just loved Dalbot. So <laughs> he was excited about it. I don't know what to say. So maybe he was getting the dopamine rush by the excitement. Who the heck knows? It's a funny thing. And this might also be something to consider about living in, quote, unquote, the developed or first world nation, if you can use those terms versus living in a more traditional society where things like mono diets are more acceptable in the norm, just how on a certain degree you can get the sense that by living in a place of overexposure to so many options, your dopamine neurological system has been on a certain sense corrupted or hardwired to need novelty to such an extreme degree that someone living in an environment where they haven't had access to as many novel variety of things for food or entertainment, whatever it is, uh, object of desire it is. Uh, has They don't have to experience that same level of pain from not having such a variety of options available. So this is just something also to look at, too, about how society can imprint your neurological conditioning uh, down to the level of something as fundamental as dopamine. And I think that's a really interesting meditation about craving and need and desire and how so much of it fundamentally is conditioned by society and culture and i think this is also why it can be profoundly healing and empowering for people to go live in other cultures because you can start to see how so much of what you feel is an essential need is something that was just forced upon you by family by society by advertising so on and so forth and there's plenty of evidence in many situations of people thriving and finding tremendous fulfillment within this neurological circuitry uh, from simple things. So at the same time, they say that the more you engage in something, the more it's going to create pain, the less it's going to create fulfillment. That, like I said, though, you know, in the example of the doll bot, but even in my own life, right, I personally have yet to find uh, a lack of fulfillment from using cold water exposure a lack of fulfillment from chocolate. I have chocolate quite often. I, I, as a discipline, actually try to take it daily because it is extremely good for the brain and the circulation and the emotional well-being. And uh, obviously not eating like, you know, chocolate ice cream, but having like raw cacao or having some kind of close to the source, at least, form of chocolate. And I have yet to really feel like deeply uninspired by chocolate <laughs> so while there is a i think a neurological truth especially in the case of using something like amphetamine or cocaine which is totally destructive towards the system and towards many aspects of one's life far beyond your neurology uh, i do think that there are natural dopamine enhancing activities and you could say substances i.e chocolate that can be used in a daily way that is simultaneously still in 
the definition of moderation and harmony. I don't think that cold water exposure daily is overdoing it. I think if you do three hours of cold water exposure, which is crazy, daily, then that's overdoing it. But it's something that uh, I, from my own experience, not so much from a place of science, I haven't done enough research on it, have found that like, you know, there's certain things that create rises in dopamine that still continue to be pleasurable and beneficial. The diabolical thing, though, about the pain response is it's increased a little bit, meaning like it just kind of keeps going and going a little bit. The pain gets more and more intense. And obviously this is best observed in the context of someone seeking drugs. Uh, So much of our pursuit of pleasure is simply to reduce the pain of that craving. So dopamine isn't as much about pleasure as it is about motivation and desire to pursue more in order to reduce the amount of pain and we are now talking about pain as a psychological pain and a craving. And in a sense, the cold plunge, you know, while you can crave a cold plunge, it's the same principle. You're going in opposition to what the lower consciousness of just craving pleasure is seeking. You're going into pain. You're going into stress. And that's triggering pleasure and euphoria you get from the cold plunge, which you do. I think about after 20 seconds of sitting in there, 30 seconds, I'm like pretty blissed out. And I think this is a simple principle you can apply to your daily life. Doing things you don't want to do, doing things that are hard, doing things that are difficult, doing things that are like, why would you ever want to do that? But because on the other side of plain pain is bliss, and it comes in the form of uh, dopamine and other neurochemicals, neuromodulators. And so to find a correlation between indigenous shamanic wisdom and modern-day neuroscience... Uh, I once saw a quote that said by an indigenous medicine person, they said that Western medicine, you take it, initially it feels good, and then it makes you feel horrible. Indigenous medicine, you take it, it feels bad, tastes bad, and then you feel really good. So this is, in summation, a traditional understanding of the dopaminergic system. You can look at specific medicines. The ones that come to mind are hape, Sananga, combo, things that, at least on the initial contact with them, especially with the latter two, there is a lot of discomfort. There's literal pain in the form of nausea, stinging, tension. A very difficult (laughs) and unpleasant experience is rupturing through your entire system that you do not have control over. And the traditional sweat lodge you can look at as a parallel example in the north and so the principle is that we're going to counteract whatever it is in our system that wants us to feel good we're going to intentionally and consciously go towards pain and with this innate understanding of our neurochemistry it's going to cause our system to go into a panic to enact and empower the dopaminergic system and bring us to a place of euphoria bliss and higher consciousness so i think there's something really powerful just in the reflection of understanding if you do traditional practices why they work and that fundamentally they are a play on your dopamine system that's not to say that one's experience of god or mystical consciousness or something along those lines is reduced down to a series of chemical interactions That's not really what the perspective I'm trying to push forward here. My perspective is more that uh, chemicals do matter in 
our experience of the divine. That's, I think, what the takeaway here. For instance, if you were to take a psychoactive substance, it doesn't matter whatever plant concoction you can come up with, but it hasn't been kept in the right way and the psychoactive components of it degrade, then if you take it, it's not going to matter how much you pray or how aligned you are or your intention or any of those things. If the thing is degraded to a certain point, it's just not going to work anymore. And there is a reality to chemistry. And the way I see it is that chemistry is a holistic part of the universe as much as esoteric mysticism and consciousness and these sort of things. And it's through our understanding of them that can lead us into a greater understanding of what we would call God or source or consciousness. And I really feel that these two things are not in opposition to one another, but reinforce one another. And if you think about traditional shamanic societies, uh, they have very strict protocols about how specific plants are dieted, uh, what you take with another psychoactive plant. They understand this because they know that there's a danger between mixing X and Y together and vice versa. And while they might not be looking at things from a place of microscopes, uh, they are in another level. And they innately respect the laws of nature. And this is something uh, that Goenka from the Vipassana tradition, he told the story. And the story is called The Law of Nature, Butter and Stones. You can look it up on YouTube. It's about four minutes long. It's very funny. And there is a ignorant young boy whose father dies. And so he runs to the Buddha. Buddha, 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 my father, he has died. Please, you must have some kind of rites or rituals to help grant his soul access to heaven. He needs a green card to heaven. And the Buddha inside, knowing this is not my work as an awakened being, yet how can I teach this young man a lesson about the laws of nature? And so he says, okay, I'll help you. I'll help your father. Go gather a clay pot of pebbles and a clay pot of butter and bring all of your holiest teachers and friends and come to this lake here and meet me there. So he gathers his holy elders and teachers and gathers the butter and the stones in the clay pot. And the Buddha says, now put them in the water. They're sitting, floating in the water. I command you to break both open. He breaks both pots. The pebbles or stones float to the bottom of the lake and the butter floats and remains at the surface. And now the Buddha says, okay, now ask your holy community to pray that the butter sinks and the stones rise. And they all go, in their praying, stones rise, 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 butter sink, sink, sink. And they try so on and so forth, and nothing happens. It remains the same. <laughs> and the boy looks at the Buddha, and the Buddha says, See, this is the law of nature. Stones cannot rise to the surface because they are too heavy and dense, and the butter is too light. It cannot sink to the bottom. And this is the way things are. This is the law of nature. I cannot do anything for your father. However, this law of nature is applicable to the way that we live our lives. If we live our lives in a way of working on our lower nature and striving for our highest potential and our highest consciousness and the highest frequency of vibration that we can possibly activate within ourselves, then we will naturally elevate and transcend our circumstances and our suffering and pain and arise to a higher consciousness. And if we do the opposite, 
No matter how much anyone prays for us, no matter how much we pray for ourselves, we shall sink to the bottom of our lowest degradation possible. And this is something that is within the confines of the law of nature that we are held to. And I really love this teaching because I think that there's something about observing the law of nature and humbling, keyword there, humbling ourselves to the laws of nature. This is not to say that there aren't miraculous, extraordinary circumstances that we have either experienced or we've heard about from secondhand sources or people. Things do happen that are inexplicable and transcendental that perhaps there isn't a person who can pray and make stones rise to the surface. Maybe that's possible, but I don't feel that's something for us to rely on. I feel that we have to rely on humbling ourselves to nature and to the laws that govern nature. And by doing so, we can uncover our transcendental nature through a simple practice of understanding how our system works, understanding that pain and pleasure are inextricably linked together and that it's not so much through a esoteric or mysterious manner about ourselves that we can come in full contact with what I do feel very deeply through my own experience and the teaching of traditions and elders, what I would call the mystery that is so grand and beyond anything that anyone could ever fully comprehend. But the doorway into experiencing that is through a humbling of ourselves to the law of nature and to an understanding of how our system works and understanding that so much of what figures such as the Buddha uncovered came through a understanding of how their own dopamine system worked. I mean, the story of the Buddha is really a story in many ways, I feel, about the dopamine system on many levels. I'm not saying that in the in sense of it being like an esoteric metaphor. It's not what I'm coming at. But you can just look at the parallels, exa parallel examples. You have someone completely consumed with sensory indulgence and pleasure sex entertainment money uh food constantly drink alcohol these are all intoxicants essentially seeking out uh, satisfaction through pleasure through activation in a very you could say short-sighted instant gratification methodology of the dopamine system i want to feel good now i'm going to seek out what just makes me feel good i'm going to avoid suffering and pain to the point where i'm not even going to be aware it exists that's the person's reality right i mean this is the complete inversion of how a spiritually minded person confronts this system within their own neurology and so then the person becomes aware of the problem of suffering and then their approach is to go in extreme towards that suffering. They become the most uh, emaciated, on a certain level, the most violent towards their physical body, uh, becoming masochistic in every sense of the word through their practices. And 
ultimately we can assume the person's a, from the story is about to die, right? From doing this for six years. So obviously he's damaging himself. And then uncovering this place of satisfaction. Because the funny thing about like Nirvana, right, is it's not, Nirvana isn't about bliss. Nirvana translates uh, to blow out, to extinguish, which if anything means to eliminate craving, right? It means to eliminate the aversion or the craving to come back to the central teaching of Vipassana around equanimity and balance. And it's to be in a place of satisfaction and confrontation though with our discomfort, but not to the point where we're pushing it away or we're trying to obtain something else, but we're remaining in a perfect equanimity of it. And at the same time, allowing sustenance to be provided through our system. And in a lot of ways, this is so much about understanding proper balancing of our dopamine system, where if there's something pleasurable or nice in the world, we're not immediately creating aversion towards it. We embrace it, but we're not looking at it as a gateway to freedom. So what this leads us to is a question and a conversation about what exactly is satisfaction from a perspective of neuroscience what exactly is happening in our system? If dopamine is all about motivation and craving and desire and pleasure, then what is it that leads us to a place where we feel satisfied, whole, in the present moment, the here and now? You know, obviously we can think about like Ram Dash and Maharaji's teaching, be here now, just be here now. What is it that allows us to enter into the state of be here now? And just before we get into that, thinking a little bit about Ram Dass's story, you know, so much of the book Be Here Now is a conversation about someone who is on a certain level addicted to psychedelic drugs. I don't think that might be a little bit of a harsh way to put it, but there was a moment in the book where he talks about he's just taking LSD uh, up in Millbrook, upstate New York, with several other psychonaut people for huge doses every day for three weeks. And by the end of it, he was so in such a state of misery. And when he was in India, he was in such a state of misery before he met Maharaji because every time he would come up, he would come back down. It's this constant need to escape and to seek out pleasurable states. Even if it's a pleasurable state, like a mystical state, it's still leading to a place of dissatisfaction. And the whole premise of his book was that by going and meeting Maharaji and, and adopting the practice of abstinence and yoga and meditation and Buddhist Dharma and Eastern philosophy, that Ram Das was able to come in contact with this state of consciousness that, not just a state of consciousness, but a practice leading to a state of consciousness of full acceptance of the present moment. And what I think is a really fascinating thing to think about is like, okay, so that exists. What does that mean neurologically, neurochemically? What does that really, what's happening inside of a person that has accessed that state? What is the difference between a person that has accessed that state, such as Maharaji when he takes the LSD and he says nothing happens to him, versus someone like Ram Dass who takes the LSD craving and experience beyond ordinary consciousness and then comes back down and finds himself on this roller coaster of getting really high and feeling elated and emotionally excited then all of a sudden totally in a place of the dumps and crashed and, and miserable and not understanding what the point of living is anymore. So what is the differentiation between those two people, neurologically speaking? That is a really good question to ask. And the answer is that we're not talking anymore about the dopamine system. We're talking about the serotonin system and understanding oxytocin, serotonin, prolactin. Anytime you have a huge 
uh, blissful experience with a large release of dopamine, it's always counteracted by a lot of prolactin, which can oftentimes have people feel like they're in a slump and kind of like, oh, the feeling you have after entering back into the default world after Burning Man. This kind of feeling, postpartum depression, is oftentimes affiliated with a large release of prolactin. It's also deeply connected towards lactation for breastfeeding mothers with the child, as is oxytocin. Worth noting, uh, connection between individuals, though, rarely releases uh, oxytocin. Oxytocin is released in very particular circumstances like post-orgasm, baby and mother milk letdown, breastfeeding. It's associated with kind of a really intense pair bonding, like mother and child, also father and child, but mainly mother and child is where it really comes pronounced because it's a a relationship to the lactation system, and um, prolactin has a lot to do with how breast milk is pumped out. And so obviously we can see how this serotonin system is, is connecting breast milk, mother, child, feeling good, and uh, feeding occurring. It happens between couples after sex. And these things reflect deep kind of layers of our biology because oxytocin is not just released when we walk in and see our dog or see someone who's a friend and we hug them and say, hi, great to see you, and that kind of thing talking about craving and these here and now molecules and how those engage in a kind of push-pull balance will allow you to not just feel more motivated but also enjoy things in life that you're pursuing to a much greater degree. We have neurons in an area of our brain called the RAPHE. The RAPHE, R-A-P-H-E, releases serotonin at different places in the brain. Serotonin is the molecule of bliss and contentment for what you already have. Serotonin makes us feel good. When we see somebody that we recognize and trust, serotonin is released in the brain. Once again, power of community, power of social interaction. And that has certain positive effects on how the immune system and on other systems of neural repair and synopsis and things that really reinforce connections in the brain to prevent the long-term withering of connections. So serotonin is tied to social connection. Uh, There's also anandamide, which I'm going to get into later, and other endo uh, cannabinoids serve their function of here and now contentedness. So endocannabinoids are really interesting and anonymine is fascinating. We're going to talk about these things in a moment. So to be clear about that, oxytocin is something that's released in very specific, deep biological connections. It's not arbitrary through casual, even enjoyable social interaction. It's something very deep. Serotonin, on the other hand, is released in a more casual social context and serotonin is a very, very powerful neurochemical experience. So it is not to be undermined just because it is released in a more casual setting while oxytocin is released in a deeper biological context. I want to reiterate that I'm not taking the perspective that a mystically enlightened person such as Maharaji is someone that's just completely absorbed in a state of serotonin or anandamide or something like this. That's not what I'm getting at. However, I think it'd be very interesting if you were able to take an accurate reading of where they were at neurologically and to see if their experience of serotonin and how they're able to consciously influence that neurochemical was fantastically enhanced beyond someone else who has fallen victim to the pain, pleasure, craving, aversion cycle 
of samsara, you could say, of the dopamine system. If there's some system in particular that really makes me meditate about samsara, the cycle of suffering that we're all caught in, the dopamine system really seems to fit the mold for that. So, like I said, this is not saying or reducing realized states of consciousness down to chemicals. We're just talking about how there is a chemical component to specific states of consciousness. More about dopamine. Dopamine is something that we can modulate. We can work with the system. So if we're just sharing the information to understand it and say, oh, well, sorry, this is just how it is and you're a victim of it. Unless you find a powerful way to activate your serotonin system, then you're forever a slave. That's not very empowering. So I think it's important not to look at the dopamine system as samsara, even though maybe I did say something very similar to that just a moment ago. What I would invite people to look at is to understand why the dopamine system is in us. It's in there to keep us alive. It's in there to keep us motivated. It's in there to keep us uh, connected to what a goal is can offer for us so one of the key things with dopamine is moderation is abstinence if you overdo something the experience of it will diminish that's really clear and obvious and anyone can tell you that so uh, cultivating enough willpower to have periods of abstinence with any kind of substance or practice or behavior that leads to mass floods of dopamine is essential for being able to allow this system to empower you and not to have it drag you down into the mud. So, for instance, Maharashi tells Ramdas, yeah, you can still take LSD. It's a good yogi medicine, but you don't want to take it unless you're turned to God. And I think that's a good teaching from Maharaji to Ramdas because he's saying, yeah, you can take it, but if you take it for recreation, if you take it for sexual purposes, you know, if you're if you're taking a drug to escape something, if you're taking it for to enhance your pleasure, regardless of what the thing is, then that is falling victim to the dopamine system. And that's not what you want to do. You want to take it when you're turned towards God, which is to say, turn towards a state of equanimity. And so just a disclaimer, I don't take LSD anymore. I've definitely taken it. And as I think Timothy Leary said, who I've always enjoyed listening to, uh, LSD is very good at causing psychosis in people that don't take it. <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth to that. And the other thing worth mentioning too, you know, we're talking about the word drug. It has such a negative connotation. Drugs are bad, right? I mean, this has been something, this has been a story that the D.A.R.E. program tried to initiate into American society. But nonetheless, when you feel sick, you go to what kind of store? A drugstore. So... And then at the same time, because of the negative affiliation with the word psychedelic or drug, our culture has had this intense, not just our culture, but traditional cultures who work with things like healing plants such as peyote or psilocybin mushrooms, they might want to say, well, this isn't a psychedelic or it's not a drug. But worth noting that uh, everything that is changing brain chemistry in dramatic ways a drug and it's really a neutral term so i think it's important to not get too caught up in having an emotional reaction to the word drug i think that as like conscious people who you need to look at that in yourself and be like okay aspirin's a drug caffeine's a drug tobacco's a drug um cough medicine is a drug lsd's a drug it doesn't make anything good or bad there's nothing to be said about that and 
I've also heard there's this wonderful phrase that says all poison is medicine, all medicine is poison. So the right dosage of things and the right intention and the right use and the right context, something can be very healing and empowering. The Beatles can take LSD and make beautiful music, or Charlie Manson can take LSD and commit heinous crimes. So is it LSD? No, of course not. All medicine is poison, all poison is medicine. It's all about set setting the person taking it their intention who they are what the condition is why they're taking it what's for it can turn someone towards god and creative wonderful things or it can damage them deeply just like aspirin or advil those things can heal you from a deep condition or they can kill you so it's important to really meditate deeply about whether or not a substance is good or bad and whether or not that's just some conditioning that someone just told you about that oh it's a drug it's bad oh, that's a medicine, it's good. Okay, well, morphine, it was given to my father after he had shoulder surgery. And uh, if I found out that some kids in the neighborhood were taking uh, morphine, I would say that's bad. But my dad took it for his shoulder surgery and it was good. And then he wound up saying, I'm gonna, I don't need any more. And he got rid of it. It's like, that's it. The other thing worth noting is the word psychedelic. I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, but psychedelic is Greek. It means mind manifesting. Anything that manifests the contents of the mind is psychedelic. So obviously things like peyote or psilocybin mushrooms, LSD, these are all psychedelic things. And I think that because this conversation around drugs and is so triggering, it's really a fun thing to look at because at the end of the day, it's really all just a bunch of make-believe hoopla bullshit and the reality is is that different things affect different people differently what's great for one person kills another what drives one person to peace drives another person crazy and everything essentially is like that some people get married it's the best thing that ever happened to them other people get married it's the worst thing that ever happened to them anyways back to dopamine so I think that there's ways that we can start to work with dopamine. So abstinence is a very simple and basic premise. This is the point of doing like a vision quest or a period of retreat or a dieta where you go off into the forest, you go into a period of isolation, and you work with just a few simple practices. And maybe you're working with a few simple plants or maybe no plants or maybe you're not in a period of, of isolation, but you're working with people in a very specific uh, way of strict rules and this is essentially to break habit and break these sort of imprints that our brain creates through these uh, dopaminergic pathways and another way that we can influence dopamine is by allowing ourselves to become as interested in the process as we are in the reward if we're only interested in the reward and a really simple example of this is someone that says I'm going to exercise just so I can lose weight. And then when I want to lose the weight, I'm going to look at myself and feel happy. In that case, dopamine's not really going to be activating during your exercise. And of course, you'll still lose the weight and you'll still get a dopamine release after you lose the weight. But it's much more enjoyable, obviously, when you are engaged with the practice. So finding a discipline that you really love to do. Personally, I've been doing Hatha yoga about an hour every day for the past couple months. And I'm just absolutely in love with it. I could keep doing it and doing it. And I'm it's not a chore for me. It's it's my moment where I really get to enjoy fully just being alive. And what's wonderful about it is that it's difficult. So it's simultaneously difficult. It incorporates an obstacle 
Uh, so it, it's challenging that aspect of myself. It's not something that is necessarily simple because some of the postures are very challenging. So it requires a lot of finesse and maneuvering. It requires movement and the dopamine system is connected very deeply with movement. So it's activating that aspect of the neurology as well. I, I would actually encourage people as much as possible to find practices that really engage with movement. Uh, I am, it's funny because I'm someone that really went the opposite direction with that. The first practice I was ever really formally trained in was Vipassana over a decade ago. And then doing a lot of shamanic work requires a lot of just sitting around. And a lot of Dharma talks are just sitting around. And while Chognam Trungpa said, you know, Western people just need to learn to sit. That's absolutely true. And I stand by that. And I'm very grateful that I've spent so much time learning to sit. And learning to sit still brought me all over the world. And it's kind of funny because I would sit still in cars, on airplanes, in a ceremony or a meditation. And because I, I cultivated some level of understanding of it, like I said, it allowed me to travel over the world and share it with people. Nonetheless, what I found was that there was a moment where it was just my system needed to move. And once I was able to apply the same willpower and discipline that got me to a place of being static and still into a place of dynamic movement, I felt all different types of things reactivate through my system. And, and I can say that must, on a large part, be connected with dopamine. And I'll get into it a little bit later, but with, also with the nod to mind as well, the endocannabinoid system. And so understanding movement, I think, is a key thing as well. And I also like with yoga, too, is that there's the aspect of novelty. Every time you take a class with someone unless you're doing a specific set, you're pretty much always guaranteed to do at least something new. So you have novelty ingrained in there, you have movement ingrained in there, you have something that is difficult, and that in and of itself is gonna activate dopamine. But at the same time, it's all the practice of coming into here and now, presence and connection with the breath. So you're activating the serotonin system here as well. And I think that that in a lot of ways is why yoga has just become a practice that has really stood the test of time and has, you know, it's originated from many different cultures. It's not just the Hindus, but also the Mayans had a form of yoga, the Tibetans had a form of yoga. And obviously in this context, we're talking about Hatha yoga and asanas in practice, because of course, karma yoga is something that exists in all cultures. Yani yoga is something in all cultures. Bhakti yoga is something in all cultures, but we're talking specifically about asana here. And so to find this connection with movement and novelty, and hard work and to enjoy the process that's the key enjoying the process of that and that's not something that necessarily is easy to train yourself to do but i can say with complete transparency i used to hate doing hatha yoga vinyasa yoga i never liked them kundalini yoga i always had a connection with but never got too into it yin yoga i could tolerate hot yoga was wonderful because of the heat and we'll get into why and how the heat impacts the system, which is quite profound in another episode. But understanding that you can train yourself to like things that you, quote unquote, I don't like this. And this is a really powerful practice of, you could say, neuroplasticity and neuromodulation, because we can understand that there are things in life that we hate doing. But once you begin to embrace fully the practice and the medicine of the practice and understand your neurochemical responses to things, just by telling yourself you like the practice, 
as they say, fake it to that you make it, which some might argue is bad advice, but there is a truth to it in, in tricking your neurological system, your neurochemical system. If you can find a way to convince yourself that you're enjoying the process of something difficult over time through effort and cultivation of this persuasion, you could say your system will respond to you neuro neurochemically as if you do actually like the practice. And, you know, at the same time, too, there's also a truth to when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I can attest that, like, actually, before I even practiced Vipassana, the first spiritual discipline from an actual teacher I came in contact was vinyasa yoga a long, long, long time ago. And it just didn't connect with me, although I did practice it a couple days a week for about three months. And so it's taken me over a decade to really finally ingrain it within my inner system. So had I been, I understood this information about the way that dopamine works and the way that we can modulate it by convincing and persuading ourselves of that we like the process. Perhaps I could have convinced myself. And when I say convince myself, you're not lying to yourself. What it is is you're cultivating a mentality of embracing, accepting, and finding joy in, in something that reactionarily speaking, you don't really enjoy. Perhaps if I had understood this teaching a long time ago, I would have been able to just enjoy yoga, Hatha yoga specifically, a long time ago. Who knows? But intention of this podcast in a lot of ways is for us to understand that the things that we don't like to do, we can cultivate a yogic flexibility to actually enjoy them, where our system will respond with dopamine, with serotonin release, and we will actually experience neurochemical joy from doing the practice. So just some food for thought as you choose which practices, disciplines you go about in your life and understand what's happening. You may not resonate with the practice or a type of work right away, but if you have the, let's say, the foresight to recognize that it's very good for you regardless and you can cultivate the mental willpower to convince yourself that it's worth putting forth the effort and learning to enjoy it, you'll be very grateful that you did. Another thing to meditate on with all this stuff is the quote, don't be attached to the fruits of your labor. Famous in the Bhagavad Gita, but it's a premise in every culture, idea of stepping into the here and now. Because if you're only getting that release of dopamine and satisfaction from serotonin as well, once you have received a payout or the thing that you were seeking, you're missing the potential for joy through the whole process and of course obviously you can work your whole life towards a certain goal and then nothing can come of it you could totally be a failure and then if you hated the process all the way through of what value was it so important to see if you can train yourself to enjoy the process of a practice that will pay off because sometimes we're just not being flexible enough and that it's worth, you know, cracking and breaking our teeth over some difficult things so that we can really, you know, open up and enjoy Hatha yoga, for example. And then other times it's worth recognizing of like, do you want to go the pathway of corporate America because you're getting a dopamine release from receiving money? Or would it be more beneficial for your overall well-being if you chose to be an artist and made very little money, but you just enjoyed every moment very fully? 
at the end of the day, which is going to be more satisfactory to you. So there's a lot of things to meditate here about motivation and reward, craving, satisfaction, and the act of discipline and how we apply ourselves and what we apply ourselves towards, what it leads to. Does it lead to anything? Even if we do everything perfectly, things can completely crumble around us. So important to understand where our priorities are. Are they in the moment, in the peace and the bliss of the moment? Neurochemically understanding that we can activate these systems to feel that response in the moment. Or are we blindly going through life chasing a carrot on a stick and you know maybe you get the carrot but maybe you don't and then you'll look back and think to yourself wow I just wasted my entire life doing things I hated and of course too there's plenty of circumstances of life where a lot of people don't have freedom to choose their situation and so the other aspect of being empowered here by this knowledge is realizing sometimes you are stuck in a situation where you just have to do hard-ass work and it sucks (laughs) And that's just the way it is. And it's very helpful to know that you can derive joy and meaning and satisfaction from simply consciously choosing to focus on, I'm strengthening my willpower, I'm doing something for the benefit of others, or finding whatever you can about joy. My teacher, Maestro Manuel, said, doing the dishes is a wonderful meditation. Now that I have a infant son... And my wife is not able to get around as much. I have to do a lot of dishes. And personally, I have found tremendous joy in doing the dishes. And that's not a bunch of bullshit. I actually do. And that phrase comes to me all the time. It's just finding a meaning and purpose in it. It, it has to do a lot with I'm clearing things away. I'm creating space. I'm, I'm moving energy, right? I'm creating harmony in the house. Just focusing on these little things can activate the dopaminergic system. And that's the thing I want to emphasize here. These aren't just like little tricks to distract you from the difficulty of life. This is about tricking your system to respond positively to the difficulty of life. And I think there's a difference there. We're not trying to bypass things. We're trying to stimulate our biology to empower us through the obstacles of daily life. So the prefrontal cortex is the break on the dopamine system. Otherwise, we would just all be extreme hedonists all the time. So other animals don't have a prefrontal cortex, and ours is responsible for impulse control, emotional management, anticipation, planning, creativity, and perseverance, and it's quite a large center of our brain. So it's a significant part of who we are and why we are not just craving hedonists all the time. And there's a group of people that I have always been fascinated with, which are Navy SEALs. My grandfather was a UDT underwater demolition team frogman in the Korean Wars, the precursor to the Navy SEALs. And I was always just fascinated by them. I always used to watch these like really pro-military Navy SEAL videos when I was a little kid. (laughs) And uh, it's funny, I laugh because I'm an extremely peace-oriented and also about as, uh, let's say, revolutionary, radical, anti-imperialist as you possibly could be. So it's kind of funny to reflect back that I was interested in the Navy SEALs. And it's they've kind of come back into my awareness because they've been on a lot of podcasts and there've been a lot of information about how they do their practices and their mindset and their mentality because it actually provides a lot of insight into how 
human biology and neurology and, and willpower function. And it's an extraordinarily relevant thing to study if you're into yoga or shamanism or spirituality in general, because so much of yoga is, is the cultivation of the willpower to seek out a transcendental state and to override our lower nature of, you know, you could say impulsive reactionary violence towards a place of composed presence, peace, compassion. And while the Navy SEALs aren't necessarily a good model of compassion in one level, they're a wonderful study for understanding willpower and what the human being is capable of overcoming and transcending. If you haven't heard much about their practices, they spend up to 30 minutes in extremely cold water. They don't sleep for over a week doing extraordinarily painful to the point of torturous exercises and dealing with what you would basically at this point would say really bad abuse in a certain level to cultivate the most fierce warriors you can. And uh, if you think about the Bhagavad Gita being a story of a war, right, and that you have to fight, I think it's a good place to look at for what does it mean to be a warrior. Of course, we want to apply the principles of peace to our own practice and compassion and apply that universally. And, you know, that being said, too, I interviewed Robert Foley, who was a former U.S. Navy SEAL and spent a lot of time in combat and really special person. You can check him out on the podcast a couple episodes prior. But, you know, listening to him, he said it was for him. It wasn't about nationalism or anything like that. He was doing it because he cared about the guys that he was going to battle with. So I don't want to undermine people and, and things like that because that's not what I'm getting at here. The institution of the military, I'm very opposed to. But when you talk to individuals who have served time, Oftentimes, you can be quite surprised with the things they say and why their motivations were for signing up and this and that. Anyways, that being said, when Navy SEALs would go through Hell Week, you would have certain ones they would that would be like the most physically built, the most physically fit, pure athletes, and they would crumble under pressure. And then you have other people that, looking at them, you wouldn't think that that person would really get through something as insane as Hell Week, and they're able to do it. And the question is why? And Andrew Huberman, uh, one of the people who inspired me to do learn a lot of the stuff about neuroscience and has a podcast, Huberman Labs, I think is what it's called. He was talking and he said that when you look at the Navy SEALs that were successful versus the ones that failed, the ones who were able to, whether consciously, but most likely unconsciously, modulate their dopamine system were the ones that succeeded. And the way they did this was they focused on step-by-step. Step. They weren't thinking oh my God, I have months longer of this training. They were thinking, I got to get to the finish line. I got to get to the next meal, to the next practice, to the next sleep. They were thinking short incremental things. And that in the moment consciousness activated the dopamine system to allow them to overcome and transcend the extreme pain because extreme pain is probably an understatement for what they were going through and find motivation, energy, and willpower, tenacity to overcome the obstacles in front of them. And the whole training program of the Navy SEALs is essentially designed to break a person down to their most weakest level to see which people will fold and back down and which people will rise up and use the adversity as inspiration to keep going forward. Because when you're in obvious 
you know, life or death combat situation, if you're the kind of person that will fold, then you're only going to be so effective. And it's just a really interesting group of people to study because to have to overcome things like that, you know that there's something happening in the biology of a person, in the willpower of a person, in the consciousness of a person that can be quite illuminating for your own obstacles and challenges in life. And so I, I like to look at the extremes because when you look at the extremes, there's something very revelatory about what's happening to you in your daily life. And then what we can learn to do, like the teaching of the Buddha, is to not go to an extreme ourselves, but to find how we can push ourselves just a little bit more outside of our comfort zone, outside of the familiar, step into something that's more novel. Remember, novelty activating the dopamine system. Something that challenges us activating the dopamine system. And something that is giving us a opportunity to experience neuroplasticity, a new way of thinking, a new approach to life, and will provide us a new opportunity to be more creative. And I think that when we do this consciously, it is extremely empowering. So doing some study on the Navy SEALs is quite interesting. One of the people I've enjoyed listening to is David Goggins. I think I talked about him last year on this podcast. Very famous on podcast world. A little crazy, perhaps. <laughs> he completed the Navy SEALs Hell Week training three times in one year. He had to do it three times because after the first two times, he medically had to back out. And the final time that he did it, he did it on broken legs. Two broken legs. So what this person is a perfect example of someone who is able to override and modulate their system so powerfully to the point where even the pain of having broken legs wouldn't prevent them from doing extreme calisthenics and running and not having sleep. It's totally insane. And uh, on a certain level, you could argue masochistic, but nonetheless, it is inspiring, I think, to understand that whatever difficulty that you're going through, whatever obstacles or challenges are faced with in your life, that there is a way to overcome and your biology can actually respond to that in a way that's empowering. Of course, we need to like think about things from a place of moderation where is it worth it? We have to weigh things. Is it really worth it to complete running miles on broken legs? Are you going to regret that later in life? These are questions that only you will be able to answer. But I do think it's really empowering when we start to reflect on all the times we go, oh, well, I'm to this or I'm to that to complete this difficult task at hand. And we sell ourselves really short. The human system, the dopamine system, is designed for us to overcome adversity that is so extreme. And this is why the human species dominates the earth in a lot of ways, because it has done this work in the past the ancestry that you carry has already accomplished this stuff and we have just diluted ourselves into a place of comfort and habit and instant gratification which is why we no longer feel this level of power come through us and so uh, to understand the, the mechanisms of the dopamine system is to understand why we need to seek out discomfort why we need to seek out novelty why we need to seek out challenging circumstances and find joy and find satisfaction and meaning 
in the step-by-step process of what it is we are trying to move ourselves towards and what is motivating and driving us. And if we can more deeply cultivate this self-awareness, we can come closer to fulfilling our goals. And what I would encourage people with uh, is how we can use these goals for the benefit of others, especially in the case of like David Goggins. It's interesting because he was a Navy SEAL. He didn't serve much time because he had some issues with his heart. But uh, he later on talks about how much uh, his story has led to helping other people and how that's been very fulfilling for him. And I think there's something really beautiful about that is that look at someone that has gone through so much physical pain and emotional pain when he talks about his story too. It's very, he has like a kind of macho man appearance on some level, but then when you listen to him talk, he emphasizes so much how what was driving him was this desire to overcome his insecurities and the racism that he endured and all the people that had bullied him throughout his life and the abuse he dealt with with his father and so on and so forth, these negative things. He really wasn't coming from a place of trying to be like this macho guy so much as I think trying to free his psyche from the torment that conditioning had placed upon him in a lot of ways. And then you look at how his story has actually gone on to influence positively, I think, a lot of people. So that's something I always try to emphasize with people, try to think about how you're impacting others, how what you can apply this level of tenacity and perseverance in a way that will help benefit the world because that does seem to make a happier place for all of us. Makes me also think about 12-step programs and how they're effective. And one of the famous phrases of all 12-step programs is focusing on one step at a time, one day at a time. And it's also an environment that is pro-nicotine and pro-caffeine and pro-social interaction. So you can see why people have had success with sobriety and this feeling of everything being okay through the philosophy and the environment of a 12-step program. And also just because I've been mentioning LSD earlier on this podcast, it's worth mentioning that Bill Wilson, who invented Alcoholics Anonymous, was deeply connected with, I believe, Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond. Humphrey Osmond did LSD studies in alcoholics, and they had one of the highest success rates in quote-unquote curing alcoholism, something like 60%. And Bill Wilson was inspired to create these programs through his use of LSD and at one point actually wanted to give it to a lot of addicts uh, who were and use it as a form of therapy obviously some things got lost in the process and now AA and other programs exist in the bottom of conservative churches you know amongst other places depending where you go but I think it's it's kind of an interesting at the same time not surprising revelation that LSD influenced the idea that what people were really lacking was not so much a capacity to overcome addiction as it was lacking genuine authentic social interaction and that through authentic social interaction people could find healing and being transparent and being transparent with one another leading to a place of stability and sobriety. Just because I'm jumping around here a little bit, one more thing. So a lot of the intention of this podcast with 
understanding this knowledge is to apply it into daily application. So it's not just like intellectual understanding. We want to use this knowledge and how we focus on what we do in day-to-day life. And it's funny when I was talking about the Navy SEALs, one thing that they would hype hype up about Navy SEALs, I remember as a kid watching the videos, was how they would go into cold water for for a long time and how this was like this torturous thing. And I remember even as a little kid just being like, oh my God, how could they do that? That's so like, you know, watching all the different things they would do in the training and being like, I could not imagine doing that. That would be the craziest thing. And now because I have had exposure to this knowledge and information about what cold exposure actually does to you, I do it daily. (laughs) So this is something that is really worth understanding is that there could be many other things that we just don't know about at this stage in the game of our lives that we might think are totally insane and torturous and would be the worst thing ever. And they might actually in turn be the best thing ever. So one of the initiatic teachings of all traditions is essentially that the path is mostly, if not completely, just unlearning everything we thought that we knew. And once we start to unlearn the habit patterns of our system and how it works and what actually is occurring, we can start to seek out experiences where we think to ourselves, in the past I avoided that. But my understanding now of how the dopamine system works essentially like a yo-yo where if I seek in a certain level pain obviously within reason, within a responsible dosage and more from a perspective of hormetic stress than literal like visceral pain and something torturous like what the Buddha was engaged in masochistic practices, we can actually find tremendous empowerment. Think about all the things that you avoid in life and create a small shift in your perspective and your mentality about why do I avoid this? what is it that I'm actually trying to avoid? And a lot of times it's discomfort and agitation and irritation. And if we can say, okay, I'm going to go towards that. I'm going to move towards that direction and embrace that discomfort and challenge myself. Because I understand my neurology, you might be able to accomplish and transcend things that otherwise would have taken you lifetimes to move through. And so just understanding this about our system, that difficulty and pain are not our enemies, but they're actually our allies. I saw this wonderful thing one time that said, pain is the greatest teacher, but no one wants to go to his classroom. And our understanding of how the dopamine functions is a perfect revelation of this. And in the indigenous traditions, I've said it on this podcast many times, they say, suffer ahead of time. Because what that means is, you know, go fast, go expose yourself to the elements Go put yourself in a place of constraint. Go do a yoga asana that is just deeply challenging. Sit in meditation for much longer than you would want. And of course, I highly, highly, highly recommend, and if, if you know, if anything, demand that people do this incrementally. You do not go from 1 to 100. You will damage yourself. That's what happened in the case of the Buddha in a lot of ways. But going incrementally into adversity will not only allow us to experience the full activation of our neurochemistry, but will strengthen our willpower. And while sitting in cold water for 20 minutes might sound crazy, if you start doing 30 seconds for one week, 35 the next week, and adding 5 seconds every week, by the end of the year, 20 minutes, or end of however long it takes, might be really 
you might be well adapted for that because there's something about when we challenge the system, the system is designed to adapt to that stress. It's designed to create a resiliency to that stress. And it enforces the strength of the circuitry. It empowers the circuitry. It allows the, uh, the system to find a equilibrium within that stress. And this is what the, the ancient teaching is, for why you can find people such as uh, Dilgo Kinsei Rinpoche, who I've talked about on this podcast as well, one of the teachers of the Dalai Lama, he lived in a cave for 14 years in the Himalayas and sustained himself wearing virtually no clothing, doing tumo breathing, uh, which is a type of breathing similar to Wim Hof breathing, but very different the tradition of the Tibetans that allows the body to stay warm even though it's cold everywhere. And uh, we can incrementally cultivate this willpower. And if we do it in the right dosage, by the time we're in a very you know, you could say extraordinary circuit set of circumstances, it might feel very normal and natural for us. And I think in a lot of ways, this is the case for a lot of indigenous cultures because they grew up exposed to the elements. They didn't grow up uh, living in a all the time summer environment with a, ther a thermostat. So there's a lot here to meditate on about what is it that you are being motivated towards? What is driving you? This is the meditation I want people to take away from this podcast. Like literally sit down and meditate. What am I what are this what are my sources of dopamine that I go to daily? Are you someone that goes to nicotine? Are you someone that goes to chocolate? Are you someone that is overindulging in sex? Are there drugs in your life? Alcohol? Are you someone that's really into exercise? Are you someone that goes into cold and heat exposure? Are you someone that's really engaged in novelty and seeking out new experiences? Do an inventory on yourself and check what is it that stimulates your dopamine system. And then look at what would be the ideal uh, sources of stimulation. For instance, if amphetamine is a, is a big source of stimulation in your life. And for a lot of people, like, you know, that might sound silly right like who does that that's listening to your podcast but i don't know maybe you've been prescribed adderall from the pharmaceutical industry which is a totally normalized thing in this culture and you never questioned it it's something to think about <laughs> neuromodulator dopamine and how you can find techniques, practices, disciplines, and substances that are actually positively strengthening the circuitry and the synaptic connections such as cold exposure, exercise, social interaction, creative inspiration, all these kind of things that we talk about. And I think that a lot of times people are like, yeah, you know, I know I need to exercise and eat healthy and I need to stop drinking so much alcohol and so on and so forth, but I have a really hard time doing it. Study the dopamine system. Why is it that you are having a hard time with it? What is arising for you? And in virtually all cases, you could say it's that you have an unwillingness to embrace the pain of not having that substance that is creating the spike in dopamine. So then we need to meditate on how we can more deeply cultivate a willpower to overcome this. And that can best be done, exemplified by the Buddha, through gradual exposure to stress and that's what the next podcast i'm going to talk a lot about is cold exposure heat exposure 
and some other things connected with breath work and physical uh, application of our body in a way to embrace stress as a way to empower ourselves and overcome ourselves and our lower nature. So there's a lot of stuff here and I hope that it provided some inspiration and understanding of why we do what we do. And like I said, this is not to undermine anything related to our mystical or spiritual understanding of life, but rather to help shape that understanding in a more uh, holistic perspective and also tinker with it where we can see that maybe, for instance, if you're someone that, let's say, you take tobacco all the time when you do a certain practice, understanding that that over time might degrade the experience that you're getting. So it might be better off that you abstain for periods of time in order to keep that heightened experience of the tobacco where you would like it. And obviously I'm not talking about smoking, uh, but there's indigenous use and ceremonial use of tobacco in a way that can, is healthy and sustainable. And I think I had mentioned it on this podcast. If I didn't mention it on this specific episode, it's on another one that nicotine has actually been demonstrated to be neuroprotective and is in a lot of ways actually cognitively enhancing when used in moderation and not smoked. And so just an example of something that maybe certain people can relate to where understanding if, if you have a habit around something to break the habit and in, in to inject a novelty into your source of dopamine might be something deeply empowering for your health and your well-being and your practice. So I could keep rambling on about a lot of this stuff, but I'm going to cut it short here. And if you guys have questions about anything here or you have any topics you want to share, email me, hit me up on anywhere that you can find me. And let's keep talking about it because the more we look into it, the more we learn and the more we can bask in peace and happiness and all that good stuff. So thank you for listening. Hausch, hausch.